Welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. I'm Stacy. And I'm David. We grew up together in Beverly Hills in the 1980s. Forget what you've seen in the movies or TV shows. We have the real stories about real people growing up in Beverly Hills. Here's a little known fact for you. There aren't any talking chihuahuas. <laughs> Beverly Hills folk drop a lot of names of people and places. We just can't help it. Don't worry, we'll explain it all at the end of the interview in the Beverly Hills Breakdown. Enjoy, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Stacy, uh, Los Angeles is going back down into a lockdown phase, and they're closing in-person dining again, and restaurants are just open for takeout. So I wanted to give a shout out and remind people to get takeout from some of the restaurants that some of our classmates from Beverly are involved in. That's awesome, David. Why don't we mention a few of our restaurants and our friends that own restaurants? So we have our friend Peter Garland that owns Porta Via. Yeah, he has three locations, and one is in Beverly Hills, one's in the Palisades. And Calabasas. Yeah, they just opened in Calabasas. And we also have a friend named Eden Alpert, who has an awesome restaurant called Vibrato on the top of Mulholland. She's available for takeout and support all of her businesses at Vibrato Grill. Delicious Pizza is owned by a high school friend of ours named Rick Ross. Very nice. Always get a slice of delicious pizza. Mm-hmm. We have a very top chef. Tell him about our friend, David. Uh, JP is the chef at Musso and Frank's, a really old Los Angeles establishment that you have to try his food. Gotta try JP's food at Musso and Frank, one of the longest and most finest restaurants on Hollywood Boulevard. Maybe you can even get one of their famous martinis to go. I'm not sure. A martini to go from Musso and Frank sounds like nothing better to me. All those people that we mentioned have one thing in common. They're also friends with our guests this episode, and that is David Stein. David Stein. It was so great talking to David Stein. I learned so much about him, his high school career, and his awesome career as an agent. Yeah, it's not often or ever that I've heard an agent being interviewed, so I thought it was really fascinating to hear all the ins and outs. That is true. We learned a lot about David and how he used his growing up experiences, his family experiences, and how he took all that and focused that into his drive and ambition and becoming a very highly successful agent. It was just a really awesome story to learn so many new things about all three generations of David's family. Stay tuned for the Beverly Hills Breakdown after we say goodbye to David at the end of the episode, as always. Hey, David. Hi, Stacy. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great to see you. Welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. Thank you. What a bright smile you have. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. Pass. I love the beard. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Looks good on you. I've really got a lot of COVID hair going, but I'm too embarrassed to show it. I tried that for a while, but... Uh, I see you went to the barber. Looks good on you. Yeah, I told him to take a little off the top and he cut all my hair off. So. Well, that's what happens. What we're first going to talk about is you are our very first guest, David, from Hawthorne. Okay. We haven't had any Hawthorne kids or guests on our show yet. So welcome and tell us a little bit about Hawthorne. I grew up at the top of Benedict Canyon of Hutton. So I went to Warner Avenue by bus my first five years and then... 
we moved on a street called Shadow Hill Way, which was actually in the El Rodeo district. But I knew kids at Hawthorne. Um, there were these guys I grew up with. I don't know if you guys will remember David probably well. Their names were Mark and Din Mann. And their, their grandfather, Judge Roy Hoffines, built the Astrodome. They uh, had grown up at the top end of the canyon. Then they moved to Loma Vista, so they went to Hawthorne. So I knew them really well. They were like brothers to me. And so I wanted to go where they were going to school. And Hawthorne was actually closer to our new house. So I started Hawthorne in sixth grade. I was in uh, the six fives, and it was a, co- a collection of rogues, to be sure. Uh, some of the people in the six fives, David Stein, Jason Sine, Anton Sachs, David Miller, Greg Bell, Johnny Freund, Oh God, there are other, it was, we were, we were a rowdy bunch. We were a rowdy bunch uh, for sure. So we've talked on the podcast before about there being four different elementary schools and Hawthorne was kind of unique that it only included big houses. There weren't the apartment buildings and people who lived in apartments that were in part of the other schools. You know, we had a view of Hawthorne of kind of being like, well, these were the rich kids. What was your experience being in it? Well, I, I, I must tell you that it was a little different, like coming from Warner Avenue to Beverly Hills. The kids that went to Warner Avenue, which is not in a bad, it's in Little Homeby. Right. The kids dressed for school nicer than the kids in Beverly Hills. When I got to Hawthorne, a lot of kids you know, wore OP pants, even when it was freezing cold and ratty T-shirts, and it was different. You know, it's weird. I was such a jock. I mean, I, I all I thought about was baseball and basketball and football, and then I was girl crazy. And I just, now looking back, I realized, you know, the parents of the kids that I was going to school with, but then, you know, Barry Robinson, he wasn't Smokey Robinson, he was just Barry Robinson. Or, but well, I guess what I'm saying is, I just was about what was going on on the playground on a very primal level. I didn't... Uh, when we would go compete against the other schools after school, David, like we go to play ball or Rodeo or vice versa. Yeah. Your horse, man. It was just about what was happening on the playground. But I, I do remember that in eighth grade, the really cute girls were at El Rodeo. <laughs> there was a cute girl clique of El Rodeo girls for sure. Well, I was lucky enough to grow up with them the whole time. You know, we, we liked going to our away games at, at El Rodeo. I just want to go back. So, David, kind of what you're saying is when you were growing up, you didn't realize that you were maybe good friends with Smokey Robinson's kid or D- David Cassidy's younger brother. It was just regular kids growing up. I really did not. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about my grandfather later, but I did grow up knowing that I had a name. And like S-T-Y-N-E was Julie Stein. I knew that my grandfather was there. And my dad was a personal manager. And so, you know, we grew up around his clients and they were at the house and we were always at their house. And we were always taught never to be starstruck, that these are regular people just like you and me. And we were taught to be very polite, but not to be starstruck. And so I just, I don't know. I just always looked at people as people. I just, I don't, I don't know how it was for, for other kids and what they talked about at dinner at night at their house, but that what we didn't talk about money and who people were and stuff like that. Well, I think we grew up with it at such a young age that, yeah. you know, the things that mattered to us were the things that happened on the playground and not what their parents did. Uh, for sure. It seems like you had this unique experience. It's almost like a Harry Potter sorting hat. 
you could have gone Elredale and then you, you chose Hawthorne. Do you think your life would have been a lot different had you chosen Elredale? I've never thought about that. Um, I really did love going to Hawthorne. I, you know, I met, I met a you know, great group of people who I'm still really friendly with today and we have great teachers. It, you know, at that, at that time, you know, remember the Beverly Hills feeder schools, like Hawthorne, these were like nationally ranked mm-hmm. schools. And even when we went to, to Beverly, not that I took advantage of it, <laughs> but it was like a really strong high school academically, like nationwide. It was recognized by the time, you know, I, I got going in my professional career, I would get phone calls every year from the head baseball coach at Beverly, who was the coach my, my senior year, this guy, Bill Erickson, and he would ask for donations because they couldn't afford baseballs for the high school team. And I just would say, how can this be? And then I, I did some research and it, it was strange how poorly funded there were high schools that we played against, like Mira Costa, who was in the Ocean League that's in Manhattan Beach, wildly well-funded athletic programs, new uniforms. And I, I just could not figure out how this wasn't the case at Beverly. I certainly feel like I, that we all went to really good schools. Absolutely. Definitely went to really good schools. So David, your grandfather was a really famous composer, Julie Stein. Can you tell me a little bit about your early memories of that? Can I run and just, I got a couple of show and calls. Can I do that? Uh, sure. Give me one sec. I'll be right back. It's going to be worth it. Yeah, good. <laughs> Yay. This is my grandfather songbook. Wow, the, the songs of Julie Stein. And then on the back, there's a, le- a, a letter from Frank Sinatra about my grandfather. This is my father. He's probably four years old with Sinatra on the girls' softball field at Beverly High. There was a softball team called the Crooners that Sinatra organized. And my grandfather, Julie, was the third base coach. He was in his 5'2". But they played softball every weekend on the girls' softball field at Beverly. And this is my dad, Norty, when he was about four years old with Sinatra. Wow, you guys can't see this, but this is a great old black and white picture. That is <laughs> Amazing awesome. with Frank Sinatra. David, will you take a picture of that for us and we can put it on the website sure, if sure. you want? Sure. That's awesome. That is so great. So just really quick on my grandfather, like pretty incredible life. So he was born in London and then his family, when he was two, they moved to Chicago and they, they owned a grocery and they lived above the grocery. And by the time my grandfather was eight years old, he was a full-on child prodigy on the piano. Mm-hmm. And by the eight, he was playing like with the St. Louis Symphony, okay? And then, this is great, he was Al Capone's private entertainment at Capone's own speakeasy that he had in Chicago. And he was this little kid, and he would play the piano, and he entertained everybody for Capone. And it was there that my grandfather picked up his habit of gambling, which he was an inveterate gambler his whole life. But it got so bad when he was a kid that Capone had to ban him from games. And there was this great story that my grandfather, he's like, you know, tiny, he's like 12 years old, and nobody will take his action. And he finds out about this game that the Koreans are running on the opposite side of town. And there's one of those doors with a special knock, but it was one of these doors where you slide it open, like from the old days. And my grandfather's, so they look out, they don't see anybody. And then they look down and they see my little grandfather. And they go, oh no, Mr. Capone says, we can't play with you. And they slam the <laughs> That's great. And then he, my grandfather came out here to score movies for RKO in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And he was a vocal coach. 
And then he partnered up with Sammy Kahn, the lyricist, and they wrote a big string of hit songs, many of which Sinatra sang in the 40s. And won an Academy Award for Three Coins in a Fountain. Right. They won an Academy Award for Three Coins in a Fountain. In the late 40s, uh, 1950, my grandfather moved to New York. He had done his first musical called High Button Shoes, which was a big hit with Bill Silver. Um, he and my, my dad's mom, Ethel, they, they lived on the 500 block of Elm. Mm-hmm. And they got the award. So my grandfather moved to New York to focus on Broadway. He wrote uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Gypsy, and Funny Girl. Really a lot of classics. Yeah. Incredible. Just one other really great uh, Sinatra story. As I said, my grandfather in the 50s, now he's in New York and he's focused on Broadway. But he had come out here to score a picture for 20th Century Fox. This is like, I guess, 55, 56. And when he would come here, he would live at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He gets home from work one day and he goes to the front desk to get his messages. And the guy at the front desk says, Mr. Stein, you're not staying with us anymore. And he says, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? Because Mr. Sinatra came by earlier today. He packed up all your stuff himself and he left this address and said, take a taxi. Sinatra had come out here. This is right after Ava Gardner. And he got a townhouse on Wilshire and Comstock. And when my grandfather got there, Sinatra had unpacked and folded all his clothes. He was a neat freak, put everything away. And my grandfather and Sinatra lived on Wilshire and Comstock for a year. They shared bachelor quarters. Awesome. That's great. I grew up here. My grandfather was in New York, so I would only see him twice a year. My grandfather would come out for the opening of Hollywood Park and the opening of Del Mar. You know, he'd have these big dinners at Chasen's with all the family and friends. And he was a great storyteller. He would just he would tell the same stories year after year, but he told them it's just like so well that you still cracked up. He was a real, real character. He was friends with my grandparents, and my mom does remember him playing piano at their house. He loved to show off. He was a total ham. Would he sit down and you'd hear him play piano? Yeah. I started at CAA like 1990 and I was dating this girl who went to Beverly if you guys will remember her name was at that time was CC Horwich okay uh-huh we're dating so we go to New York together and we go to visit I wanted to meet my grandfather so we go to his apartment it's on 72nd and 5th and he knew I was coming with my girlfriend so he opens the door and he's you know dressed all up he's got a little like carnation kind of flower in his lapel and he's pouring on the charm and after we talked for a little while he's like you know what i'm working on a new show would you mind if i played a couple of songs for you so he goes to his piano and he says after all he says cc why don't you come here and sit next to me while i play and you know he's just it, it what I, I, when i say like not subtle not subtle right <laughs> well amazing amazing memories amazing stories when i got promoted as an agent initially uh, they made me a theater agent. They never had one before at CAA. Uh, the guy who found CAA, who was my boss at the time, Michael Ovitz, said, David, we're going to promote you and put you in the theatrical area. We've never done this before. I want you to go to New York as long as you want, as often as you want. And I want you to meet everybody there is in the theater business, see every show. And you you tell me if you think we should be in this business. So I'm like 25 years old. I'm single. We're going to the St. Regis for one and two weeks at a time. It is unbelievable. Here's the best part of it is that my grandfather was putting the finishing touches on what would be his last show on Broadway, which was his version of the Red Shoes Ballet. 
I would be in New York all the time and he was working. And so I got to you know spend time with him and he would call me his agent. He would call me on the phone all the time. So I really got to know my grandfather like the last two years of his life because I was doing theater and I was in New York a lot, which was great because I grew up on the West Coast. He was over there and I really didn't get to, to see him that much. That's amazing. I, I just got chills. What an amazing opportunity to have yeah. that time with your grandfather, who was obviously, you know, world renowned, and you got to have your own intimate relationship as a young adult. What an incredible experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky. Your father was also in the business. He was. My dad was a personal manager. He started as an agent briefly at a company called GAC, which is one of the three agencies that joined to form ICM. An interesting fact was my dad's boss at GAC was an agent named Marty Baum. And Marty had an agency in New York called Baum Newborn, and they represented my grandfather for a time in the 50s. Then my dad was on Marty's desk at GAC and got promoted. And then Marty helped get me a job when he was at CAA, you know, 89, 90. So Marty Baum's career, he's a legendary agent. Marty Baum's career as an agent spanned three generations of my family. Wow. My dad's business was mostly in Vegas. He had Connie Stevens and Frank Gorshin and Frankie Avalon was a longtime client of my father's and Jack Carter and Jack's son, Michael, somebody that Michael Carter, we grew oh, yeah. up. So Michael and I knew each other since we were babies because my dad represented his dad. That's fun. So you were really close to all the families of the of your dad's clients. Yes, very, very close with Connie Stevens and her family. So Connie's daughters, Jolie and Trisha Fisher, are like my sisters. Literally, we we grew up together and we're, we're still really, really close. That's amazing. Yeah. We're going to have to have them on the show sometime, too. We definitely have Jolie and Trisha. Yeah, we would love Jolie and Trisha. We grew up together, and they went to Warner Avenue for a time, and then they moved to Malibu, and then they ended up coming back and going to Beverly High. Legendary parties at Connie's house on Delfern. I heard a lot about the Delfern parties. I never made it to one, but I've heard a lot about them over the years. Yes, yes. Do you have a story that stands out that was just something that you got to do because of your dad's career? Well, I'll tell you what's really funny is I told you I was a total jock, you know, growing up and even high school, I you know, played a lot of sports. My dad's office was on South Beverly, right above Piccolo Paradiso, the restaurant there, you know, right at the one. Okay, so yeah. I remember as a kid going into my dad's office all the time, like, and seeing him just talking on the phone. And those days, everybody chain smokes. He was just like smoking cigarettes and on the phone. I would say to myself, I will never do this. this <laughs> Lo and behold, I've become an agent. An uh, agent. On the phone all day. I love it. Well, let's talk about a little bit about Beverly High. Uh, we all came in as freshmen together. So, David, you were on the freshman football team. I hear you were our quarterback. I was. You were my quarterback because I was on that team. Yeah, David. Oh, yeah. See, what happens is, is that... For freshman football, there was summer football two weeks before school started for two-a-days. And so me and David and all these guys who knew each other kind of, but now we were hanging out together and everybody became friends like right right away. And so it's like it, it, was, it was totally cool. I, I had a good arm, but I had uh, happy feet in the pocket. I, I, I didn't – I was not – comfortable in the pocket once the pressure came. I was very ill-prepared to play high school football. I was small and they put me on the offensive line and I played about one quarter and I allowed a sack on you and you yelled at me in the huddle. (laughs) 
I was so crazy uh, and obsessive about sports. I, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not not flattering, but it's true. My my senior year, we had a really good baseball team. By the end of the year, we were like in the top 25 in Southern California. Southern California is like a great brand of high school baseball. We were really good. I was the number one pitcher. David Cantrell was number two. We were great. But I was insane to play with me. Like I was such a perfectionist that I just, I was just nuts. And if I didn't like what somebody was doing, my teammates, I would like, you know, like no hesitation, like a little nut. <laughs> one time we're beating Mira Lest. They're one of the weaker teams in our league, like 17 nothing at home. And I'm pitching. And the coach, Bill Erickson, puts in somebody who like rarely got to play because we were up by so much. Fly ball goes to right field, routine fly ball. This guy misplays it. I go fucking crazy. And after the game, Bill Erickson put his arm around me and said, let's take a walk. <laughs> you know, you should try to be a little bit more of a human being sometimes. And I will never forget that. It's, it stayed with me. Like at that time, it didn't like, I just was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But later in life, like I remembered that. And it's like, you know, because we all become more human, but at that time, I just was so insanely competitive and wanted to win so bad that uh, I just, I, I, I didn't tolerate it. I can understand that. My son is very, sounds very similar to you. <laughs> Growing up, it took a while, but after, through high school, he finally, again, a coach talked him down and kind of got him onto the right path. Yeah. 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 How do you think you got so driven in the, in sports? What was the drive? I will tell you that I, I had a coach in Little League at Westwood National Little League on Sepulveda, just south of Wilshire. There are three fields. And I played there because, uh, you know, again, I, I grew up at the top of Benedict Canyon. I had, I had a Little League baseball coach. His name was Alan Sandor. And my first year in the majors, because they're the minors, I was a 10-year-old, so I was only younger kids on the team. But we went 20-0. and 0. We won every single game. And... He was such a great coach and such a great motivator that by the time I was like 11 years old, I just was addicted to winning. You know, as soon as you develop it in sports, like a, like a killer instinct. I wanted to play and I wanted to win and that's all. Mm -hmm. You played baseball all through high school. Did you stick with football? No. First year I did football, basketball, baseball, and then my sophomore year, I threw in on baseball. That was my one big, you know, love. Like I, I played everything, but I love playing baseball. How did that drive and passion of sports continue through to your career? Because I know that you were super young when you got to CAA and kind of was a hot shot, fast track to agent. Yeah, uh, a really good question and segue. And I've talked about this time and again. There are things that you learn playing sports that uh, at the time, you think they're about sports, but they're really about life. Little things like, if the ball's hit to me, what am I going to do? Well, that's preparation. And play the ball, don't let the ball play you. That's being aggressive and kind of attacking the situation, not letting the situation play you. And and you were you know we were taught that if you charge the ball and it takes a bad hop and it bounces off your chest, it, you still you still played it properly. It just took a bad hop. So physical errors will happen sometimes, but what are unacceptable are mental errors. And so if you have that kind of discipline, you know, approaching a career and a work ethic and a, and a way that you approach your business, it's a pretty good 
foundation and building, especially for being an agent, it's so competitive and cutthroat. And just to just to get through the mailroom and then get through being on a couple of agents' desks to get through that uh, training program to then you know even get your shot to be an agent. And they're basically like they're like, okay, go swim, you know. And you're just like, well, you know, you gotta figure it out on the fly. And as you go, if you don't want it really, really bad. When I when I started uh, in the mailroom, that time all the scripts were copied and they all had to be run all over town. So when you started in the mailroom in the training program, you were on the runs and there was one run in the morning and there was one run in the afternoon. Then you, in between runs, you were sh- shucking mail all over the office and delivering things. And then at night, you had to do night runs before you could go home. And then two days a week, you were you were setting up for staff meetings at five and going to the supermarket at five in the morning and laying all the stuff out for the motion picture staff meeting. And then two nights a week, you had to close the office and make sure there wasn't one last thing that needed to be copied. There were times my first couple months, I'm not kidding you, but I would get home at two in the morning. I would go to sleep and I would be up at four, be at the supermarket by five because I had to set up. And I remember one day I was so exhausted. I just pulled over like by Beverly Glen. Right by like where like, you know, where Westlake used to be, you know. Yeah. I was exhausted. I just said, you know, how bad do you want this? Is this really worth it? Because I and I and I just said, yeah, and I just pushed through. And it's just like you, you need that kind of desire and almost, you know, maniacal want of all of it. Otherwise, you won't get through. I'm sure people don't understand this out there. But the only way to become an agent at the time was to go through this process. You started in the mailroom and had to work your way up. That's right. And even to get in the mailroom, the odds were stacked against you. I interviewed everywhere. And I thought I was in at William Morris. And then I got dinged. I was devastated. I'd done really well in college. And I just was, I felt so ready. And I wanted it so bad. And then, you know, like Marty Baum, I said, help me. A couple other people, you know, helped me. I, what had happened was I got a job offer to work at a company called Sovereign Pictures, they had distributed My Left Foot and Cinema Paradiso. So they were like a hot porn sales slash production company. And I knew somebody there and they got me an entry-level job. And I and I liked it. I was, I was working. I was happy, you know. Mm-hmm. And my dad had gone to Syracuse with Peter Goober. When I graduated, my dad sent me just to meet, you know, seven or eight people in the business just to get advice. So I met Mike Metavoy, who my dad worked with, and some other people on it. And my meeting with Peter Goober had gotten pushed off the time. So I went to go meet Peter Goober right after I started this company, Sovereign Pictures. So he said, you know, tell me what's going on. He had, he had just taken over Columbia Pictures right after Batman. Wow. 80, in the 1990s, got the, the ponytail and the whole thing. So what's going on? You know, how's your dad? Da, da, da. So what, what, are you, what are you doing? And I said, well, he said, I got a job at this company, Sovereign Pictures. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've been on like on a wait list at CA to get in the training program there for months on months. And then I just got a call yesterday from Ray Kurtzman. And he asked me if I wanted to come work there. And he goes, so what did you do? And I said, well, I haven't done anything yet. He's like, why? And I said, I, I go, see that phone over there? He goes, pick it up. Goes, oh. Ray Kurtzman right now while you're in my office and you tell him that you're ready to start yesterday. There you go. You got, you can't snooze. You got to do it and jump on it and go. I love it. I got, I just got really lucky. I was in the mailroom for a couple months and then I got a call one day. Mike Ovitz wanted me to work on his desk and he just said, basically, I'm pulling you out of the company's mailroom and you're going to be in my mailroom for the next you know year. And so I got to work 
you know, when Mike sold Universal to the Japanese and he was running the business, man, he was like the emperor. It was incredible. I was one of five assistants. and That must have been an incredible time. Tell us a little bit about that. It was incredible. Like sometimes I'd drive Mike to lunch and we'd walk in and when he walked in, man, restaurants would get quiet. Wow. It just was a totally different time. I, I learned a lot about preparation and detail. And he was an in, incredibly forward thinking guy. When I was on his desk, he signed Coca-Cola to the agency. And I remember the execs from Coke came for a meeting in our conference room uh, at night. I set, you know, set up the meeting and Mike told me I could hang around and observe. Coca-Cola came in with this whole presentation about how they lost domestic market share and movies about the Pepsi generation. It was, you know, like a two hour presentation. I remember Mike got up afterwards and he just, his rap was so tight and he just found Coca-Cola in the room and said, this is how you're going to get it back. Mike Ovitz is kind of credited with inventing the package, right? Film package, not the television package. TV packaging is as old as the agency business, but CAA really turned it into a a seller side marketplace where there was packaging going on and things were put to the studios. And it was a great time to be an agent. And, uh, you know, we had incredible leverage and we, we had the, if we wanted to, as a literary agent, if I had a hot script, I could take a beat before going out to the marketplace and try to bring in a director and an actor or two. And then basically, instead of just selling a script, you're selling a movie and you can jack up your price for the for the script that you were representing. So that was always an option that was fun because that's kind of like producing, right? So the process was getting all your clients together from different fields and putting yeah. it together as a movie before you brought it to the studio. We were selling a movie and not just a script. Over the last 15 to 20 years, it's become a buyer side market. Again, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to sell things because the buyers, particularly the studios and now Netflix and Apple, they're so specific about what they want and how they want it, that uh, it's a lot different. But for a good 25 years, because of how CA revolutionized the film business, it was definitely a seller's market. And it was like the Wild West. It was fun. Some agents are notorious for being cruel to their assistant. Was Mike Ovitz a nice guy? Michael is a nice guy. He became my neighbor on Benedict Canyon, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> but at, working for Michael was hard. It was really intense. And um, he was at the very top. He, he was running the business. In a year and a half on his desk, I never saw him like once lean back and go like, isn't this great? It, it was not like that at all. It was really intense all the time. And there was uh, very little margin for failure. And when you didn't do your job, you, uh, you knew. David, what was your transition out of the mailroom to becoming a full-fledged agent? The company was looking to start a theater department. The motion picture department was crap, you know, full. And so I saw an opportunity. I thought to myself, I do want to be in motion pictures, but if I can just get my stripes and be an agent and do theater, maybe I'll be a theater agent forever. But I know that once I'm an agent, it'll be easier getting in the motion picture department than from a desk. Mm-hmm. I got promoted and I was doing something a little bit different than everybody else. And I was signing new writers that no one had ever heard from, from sometimes from regional theaters around the country, I'd read a review of a play or, and I started selling spec scripts. They're they're scripts that writers write on their own time in speculation that they'll sell. And so I started selling a lot of scripts by new writers and I was kind of doing 
then half theater and half movies. And then by around, I got promoted in 93. I'd say by 95, I was primarily focused on the movie side of things. The first big movie that I put together was Any Given Sunday. Doesn't get much bigger. So that was a good start. I developed a football script with a playwright from Chicago named John Logan. And I knew from paying attention in staffing that Oliver Stone wanted to do a football movie. And so I gave it to Oliver's producing partner, a guy who actually went to Beverly. His name is Dan Halstead. He was like five years older than mm. And Dan called me and he, one day and he goes, like the next day after I gave it to him, he goes, hey, I think you hit the jackpot. And I was like, what were you talking about? He's like, Oliver wants to do it. I go, you're, you're kidding. And he goes, he's going to call you. And I go, okay, so now... It's like the next day, it's like Friday at six o'clock and I had this Israeli assistant, Roni Zimone, who comes in and she goes, David, she goes, Oliver Stone is on line five. And I go, right. I got somebody playing a joke. She's like, no, no, I think it's him. So I took the phone and it was Oliver and we talked for 20 minutes and he said that he wanted to make the movie and he said, I want you running point on this and here's what I want. And it's just so like... I remember driving home like that night on Friday night. Like I just was like driving on air. I was like, "What just happened?" That's probably when I really became an agent. You know, like I was I, I was doing it, but you know, kind of it just it got to a whole other. That's life. awesome. And then Oliver Stone later became a client. Yeah, Oliver was a client of mine for uh, ten years. I was with Oliver from I would say any given Sunday through World Trade Center. Wow. Yeah, he just wrote a book himself, and I listened to it because he narrated it, and I. We had a nice conversation about it. Uh, I love all of them. He's, he's, a, he's a mad genius, but I love him. I've heard him interviewed quite a few times. He does seem like a mad genius. Yeah, he is. He is. Were there some crazy stories on the set of that film? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Any that you can tell? No. <laughs> no. Well, that's reasonable. I, I, uh, I, I did a great set visit when you get Alexander in Morocco. We're riding a camel. That was fun. And hanging out in the old quarter with Colin Farrell and a bunch of people. That was fun. And, and uh, went to the Venice Film Festival with World Trade Center. You know, I, I will say this, like Oliver's film sets ran like a military operation. He was always on time and on budget. But, he, you know, Oliver liked to have fun. Well, he tells some crazy stories himself. Yeah. Very cool. Were you stuck in the office or were you often on the set? You know, what is the life of an agent? You're in the office. You do want to visit the set when your clients are working. But the set is, it's a very, it can be very monotonous. I remember a story, I, I, one of my other clients was Michael Mann. And Michael was filming Collateral in downtown Los Angeles one night. There's a scene with um, Data Pinkett Smith and she's in an office building in downtown LA. So there was a writer we represented at CA named Scott Silver, who was one of the writers on The Joker last year. And he wrote Eight Mile and Greg. And he just, he idolized Michael. And I, Scott and I had gotten to know each other pretty, really well. Scott and I go to dinner one night at Ago, and then we go to the set. There's a night shoot downtown. And Scott is like a pig. And you know what? He is so happy. He's on the set. Michael, you know, we're, you know, we're rapping with Michael. And for me now, I've been up since like, you know, six in the morning. It's and it's like 11, 1130. It's like past my bedtime. <laughs> I think I said something like in between takes, I said something like, Michael, hey, listen, we're going to get out of your hair. Go, And he looks to Scott and he goes, that's agent speak for I want to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it is in the office. But, you know, it's really it's also really powerful to get in people's faces when you're trying to sell things. So we would get on get in our cars and go see people. 
a lot and you know we have to travel to go sign people sometimes like when, when we re-signed john hughes to the agency like six of us flew private on a sunday there's farm in upstate illinois you're kind of in an unusual position as an agent because you're both want to make your client happy but you're also making their careers for them i mean you're essential to the whole process you know you wear a lot of hats being an agent and i will i will say this god you meet a lot of people being an agent it's it's incredible just how many people you come in contact with. What do you think are the main skills of an agent? Well, I was a literary agent. So as a literary agent, I was an English major. So being well-read was really important. And reading, I read 350 scripts a year for 20 years. Yeah. You're reading all the time because that's your currency. And being able to talk about a screenplay's merits and faults in an eloquent way is really important. So you're because that's the way you're going to develop things with your writer. That's the way you're going to get into being a director's agent because you know how to talk about a screenplay and what's working and what's not working. And, you know, you're always alluding and making literary references to things that we've read like Shakespeare and these things really, you know, help. You also have to be aggressive and be able to think on your feet. You have to be personable. You know, you have to be nice you can't win every time. We're always told, you know, you don't have to get the most every single time. The best deals when everyone, when everyone walks away feeling good. And I will say this, this is, I, I always love this is that I was honest and I told my clients the truth and my clients would say to me, you know, David, even when you tell me something that I don't want to hear, I still feel okay. And I took that as like the greatest compliment. I thought then you know, I'm doing my job. And I've got a great rapport with my clients. If I can tell them bad news and they still feel okay. 100%. It's how you communicate and your communication skills and having your words with integrity, speaking with integrity really does help. And I found that even just in my own business career. And I'll tell you this, what's really funny is you guys would think that growing up where we did, I'd have run into more people like that we grew up with in the business. Now, there were some, but not nearly as many as you would think. Most of the people who I worked with and interacted with at the studios, they were from different places and they came here and Hollywood was like a college campus for them. This is where they made friends and they got into the little cliques and friends. And, and, and I grew up here, so I had my own friends. Like I, I had relationships, but I had my own friends and I had people uh, in my life that weren't in the business where a lot of people came here from the Midwest and, East Coast, and it just was like, that was it. And so while, while I worked all the time, it was nice sometimes to have friends here because, you know, LA, LA roots run deep, right? Mm-hmm. You could take a break from it. You never really take a break. <laughs> no, you don't. A lot of your clients were some of the older, you know, uh, not older, but a generation older than you, directors like Oliver Stone, Michael Mann, and Taylor Hackford. How did that come about that all these older directors wanted you? That's a really good question. I think people think I'm a tough guy, (laughs) but I'm I'm actually very sensitive. But I I think, again, you know, Oliver and Michael in particular, these guys, you know, I would get asked all the time, God, you represent Oliver Stone and Michael Mann. What's that like? And I... I just would say, honestly, these guys are two of the smartest people you will ever meet. And the truth is, there's no phone calls where you're like putting your feet up and you're like just, you know, chit-chatting. It's 
these guys bring it on every call. And, it, and you know, representing Michael Mann made me a better agent. I, w- I was prepared on every single phone call. I did not want to not have the information that he was calling me about or wanted to know about. Mm-hmm. I got into business with Michael. He wanted my client, John Logan, who wrote Any Given Sunday, to rewrite a Western that he had at Disney called El Dorado that was written by a guy named Bill Boyles, who wrote Apollo 13. And I said, no, I think John should write the Howard Hughes movie that you have with Leo DiCaprio. And so I got John that job. In development, They, they John started calling it The Aviator. And that's what the movie became because he said, if you asked Howard what he did, he'd say, I'm an aviator. Although he did many things, if you asked him that, he would say, I'm an aviator. That's, That's cool. That's really how I got going with Michael. I hung out at Stacy's house a lot in high school, and she always had a VHS tape going on on their TV, and we would watch movies. And one of them was always Taylor Hackford's The Idol Maker. We're going to play Beverly Hills here. I'm not kidding. So Taylor was a longtime client at CAA. He's represented by Fred Spector, who's an amazing man and is still uh, an agent and, go- and working at Sorry, 86 or 87 years old. I just spoke to him two days ago. I gave him a script for Taylor that I'm that I'm I'm hoping that Taylor will want to do. It's it's um it actually could not be more timely. It's about a nurse during what would be the next inevitable pandemic, and the hospital has become a hot zone. So at any rate, I just spoke to Fred. Fred was Taylor's agent his whole career, and then I can't remember something happened, and Taylor went and signed with Jim Wyatt who was running William Morris. And then I remember Fred called me one day and said, Taylor wants to come back. I want to involve you. We're going to go and visit him in New Orleans. He's finishing up Ray, movie Ray with Jamie Foxx. Great movie. So we go to New Orleans and we're having dinner with Taylor at a place called Clancy's in New Orleans, which is a great place if you've never been there. When next time you go, go to Clancy's. It's old school. It's fantastic. And so we get to talking. I said, Taylor, I said, this is like, you know, a dream come true for me. You've made some of my all-time favorite movies. And, and I and I took a shot on this. I just was, maybe I'd had a couple of drinks. I don't know. But I, I said, I also want to thank you. And it's true something. He said, what? I said, well, when I was a senior in high school, there was a girl that I had a really big crush on. I was working on this for a while. And I, I remember finally I got her to have a date with me. And she picked me up on a Saturday in her TR7 convertible, and we went to see Against All Odds. And I said, it worked for me, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> it's funny, you know, Oliver and Michael have big reputations for being really tough. And, you know, look, they're brilliant, but not easygoing guys. Although Oliver can be playful, but they're, they're, they're tough guys, right? And so... Taylor had a wicked reputation, right? And what was interesting is that by the time I started working with him, this is right after Ray, God, I had the best time with him. I would say, like, I don't know what all these stories are about. Like, I, I work with some tough people. This guy's like a dream. I love this guy. We had such a great time. I know Taylor's son a little bit. Super nice guy. Rio. Yeah. 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 yeah good guy. So what happened after CAA? After CAA, uh, went to work at an, a company called ICM for a couple of years. And while I was 
working there, I actually wrote a script myself because I always thought that I maybe could write one script. I didn't know about two, but I thought I could write one. In like 2005, I went to Rio with a couple of guys I played high school baseball with. All of us were very single at the time. We went like over the holidays for like 10 days. And Which guys were those? Uh, Chris Ostro and Michael Carter. And Michael Carter's 80-year-old mom went. Oh my God. <laughs> and she partied harder than any of us. So when I got back, I told Oliver all about my trip. And he goes, God, David, he goes, that sounds like a movie. And so I never forgot that Oliver said that. And I actually wrote down a lot of these anecdotes because I didn't want to forget them. And so one year at Christmas, uh, my ex-wife and I were going to Hawaii. And I would usually bring a book when I went on trips because all I read was scripts. And I brought a legal pad and a pen, and I wrote out in longhand this movie about my crazy trip to Rio that was a movie a lot like The Hangover, an R-rated sex comedy. And then my ex bought me Final Draft. I didn't know what the hell to do with it because I was under contract at ICM, and I didn't want it to blow up my face. And then I bumped into this producer who had a fund, you know, a discretionary fund, which is like when a producer's not just a producer, but he's got his own money to acquire things, which makes you uh, a little bit different than everybody else out there. And anyway, and he had made a couple of movies in Brazil. And it just was like, I bumped into him and I was like, hey, would you want to make a movie like The Hangover set in Rio? And he's like, why? Do you have it? I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, send it to me right away. I said, he goes, who wrote it? I said, that's this young kid I signed at UCLA. And I'm just putting finishing touches on it with him. But and so now this guy's emailing me and calling me every day. Where's my Rio comedy? Where's my Rio comedy? So I've, I've got him hooked. And so I put a fake name on it and I gave it to him on a Friday. And on Monday morning, I came to my office and I see him. He's sitting there with his development guy. And he goes, we're not leaving until we have a deal on that script. So as soon as I closed the deal, then I told him it was me. And he goes, I knew it was you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so was that was it made and everything? It wasn't made. It was almost made. It was got moved from like the holidays to Carnival. So we called it Carnival, which is in February. It's like their Mardi Gras. And then we ended up with a director named Josh Stern. And we had uh, John Cusack attached to play Yours Truly and Johnny Knoxville to play his crazy brother. And we had Genesis Rodriguez and Jessica Alba playing the two Brazilian love interests. Wow. They're negotiating with Al Pacino to play the Brazilian bad guy. And it went to the AFM. Funds were raised and the guy, the lead producer just said like we couldn't pre-sell it. By then I had been working on it for like two years because I was the writer. I was also a producer on it. So I made a deal for myself to produce and all the arrows were pointing up. And then, you know, by the time we, uh, after like three years, that time had passed. So I decided to get back into, you know, representing people and producing by becoming a manager. Now I'm managing people and I'm producing. So now that you've transitioned from agent more into producer, I saw your movie Love Means Zero. David, my body gave out on me a long time ago. I had to stop playing baseball. Now I play tennis. Nice. And I love tennis. I, I played it all my life. I didn't play it in high school because it was the same time of year as baseball. But I play all the time. I love it. I uh, was approached by somebody who went to Beverly. Um, you guys might remember Jill Mazursky. Of course. Jill plays also. We belong to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club over here on Maple Drive. And Jill said, I want you to meet somebody. Her name's Ann White. She was a professional tennis player. And she was one of Nick Boletieri's early students and protégés. And she's got the rights to his new book. 
would you read it? You'll know what to do with it, David. So I read it and I said, this is a documentary. We should do this at ESPN. Is it like a sports documentary? We brought in a director and we came up with a take and we were going to do it at ESPN, but Andre Agassi wouldn't participate. And that was one of the conditions that ESPN had. And so it mm-hmm. fell, fell apart at ESPN and Showtime called us and said, we heard about this. We don't care about Andre being in it or not. How much do you need? We said 900,000 and said, done, great. What a character he is. Solitary characters. He was great. Is that what you're doing today? Trying to put together your own projects? When I develop something with one of my writer clients, more often than not, they will want me involved as a producer because we've worked on things together and I've contributed and they, they feel like I'm added value. So I would say more often than not, I'm involved as a producer, things that I'm working on with my client. Anything you're working on right now? The one thing that's posted, it's great. It's a film musical. It's at uh, Sony, uh, at a division called Sony 3000. It's called Love Train. There are love trains that run all over the world. This one, we got an article about one in New Zealand that runs every four years. It's an old locomotive, and they've been doing this for like 100 years. Every four years, it's like a government initiative to bring young people together so they get married and have children, increase the population. And as the train starts in the rural areas and ends up in the city and there's a ball, former colleague of mine who actually represented Oliver Stone before me and with me, his name is Mike Menschel, he gave it to me. He said, what do you think of this? I said, this is great. We should do a musical on this train called The Love Train. It's so groovy. It's like people you know, hooking up on The Love Train. And so I came up with the idea to go to a director named Stefan Elliott, who did Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm. Oh, yeah. And we go to Stefan. He's Aussie, and he knew all about The Love Train. He's, I know all about The Love Train. (laughs) And so he came up with a great take on how to do this kind of story about a girl and a doctor on the train. And we brought it to a big producer named Lorenzo de Bonaventura, and we set it up at Sony. I love it. All aboard the love train. The love train, baby. Do you feel like there's so many more new opportunities with what's happening in television that for projects? There are new opportunities, but it's really hard now. I mean, it, you know, not that it was ever easy, but it just seemed like there was just a bigger appetite in the marketplace for everything than there is. It's just, it's very hard to transact today. That's all I can wow. say. I, I, I would imagine most of the people that you talk to in a business would say that. It's hard. It's tough. I would think it would be the exact opposite with Netflix buying things and Apple buying things that there's so much more opportunity. They're very specific about what they want. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to bring them something, you got to bring something to them that's fully packaged. Like you were talking before about packaging, you got to now do all this packaging as a producer and bring them something that, you know, you got to compel them to jump. You just don't go yeah. in idea or a script that they'd be like great sounds great bring it back when it's you know put together so it's challenging sounds like it but i don't know how to do anything else (laughs) well you you must be good at it (laughs) driving (laughs) talking about being good at it you know it it might sound to some people out there like well people got you in the door and you had connections but i think we know growing up here connections is not enough to do anything of a career. It, it can help you, but you've got to be really good at what you do to be as successful as, you know, as you've been. I would say that in my business, it's about relationships, luck, and timing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to work really hard. 
and be diligent. And a lot of people have a misconception about show business. And there's a lot less show and show business than there used to be. It's hard work. And you just got to keep on pushing balls down the field every day. You've talked about how your project didn't make it all the way through at this point, And that's true for most projects. Yeah. You know, I have this expression, when something's really good, it somehow will find its way at some point. Like every great script, I didn't write a great script. Every great script, I think, if it's really great, it'll find its way. It may not happen when you think it will, but eventually, if it's great, it'll find its way. True. Yeah. All the good rises to the top. Yeah. I have a couple follow-up questions. So seemingly on top of the world in high school, did you still have normal high school insecurities and kind of wondering about your future? I, I don't know about you guys. I got to Beverly High and I was so impressionable and I wanted like to be accepted so badly. And I just saw all these beautiful kids wearing beautiful clothes and the cars and the parties and the felt a lot of peer pressure at Beverly Hills High. And looking back on it, there was a lot of peer pressure. I felt a lot of pressure to be cool. I think I craved attention. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I think there was a real profound lack of supervision when we were growing up. You know, there was always somebody's parents were away and the house was empty and they had an allowance. And they're just, you know, we had access and privilege and you know like 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 when i saw less than zero i was like i didn't grow up with those kids i i I know that there are those kids and i met uh breddy spinellis later in my career and we talked about it he went to buckley and the kids that we grew up with like they didn't i didn't my friends didn't drive ferraris and stuff i went to beverly high in the like early 80s it was insane you know there we, we figured it out there were to kind of do stuff a lot of the time that probably we wouldn't want our own kids doing. There were a lot of access to empty houses, money, drugs. Yeah. And I had housekeepers that would score my drugs for me. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stacy said you have a story about meeting me before we were in high school. I do. I, do. I told Stacy, this is how long I've known David passed. My mom's best friend when I was growing up was a lady named Nancy Ottemeyer. And she had a, a son named Bradley Ottemeyer, who was one of my closest friends. And Bradley had a party one year, and it, we went to the Olympic Auditorium and saw like a battle royale, the re, wrestling thing. Wow, I remember this. <laughs> and David Pass was one of the boys that was there. And I, I, this was probably 1975 or 1976. That's how long I've known David Pass. Well, David Stein... It was great talking with you. I love that you're doing this and um, keep doing what you're doing. It's very cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to the Beverly Hills Breakdown. All right. My favorite part of the show. Stacy, let's start with Werner Avenue Elementary. That's where David started school. That's in Homeby Hills. I lived in Holmby Hills. Holmby Hills is a nugget in between Beverly Hills and Bel Air. It's where really big houses are. And that's where the Playboy Mansion is and Aaron Spelling's big mansion as well. David mentioned one restaurant, Chasen's. That was opened in 1936 and it's just outside of Beverly Hills in West Hollywood. It was started in 1936 by a comedian named Dave Chasen and it closed, unfortunately, in 1995. 
I remember eating there. It was super delicious, super fancy, and super special. Kind of funny that it was a fancy restaurant because they were famous for their chili. Totally famous for their chili. You're right. I remember the fanciest bar mitzvah I ever went to was catered by Chasen's, and everybody was very impressed by that. Oh, I must say that is very fancy. Now it's become a Bristol Farm supermarket. Very true. Still a fancy building to get some food. And a fancy market. Very true. David represented several directors and talks about them, and we could just go over some of them. Uh, One is Michael Mann, and he created one of everybody's favorite shows, Miami Vice. Couldn't go through the 80s without watching Miami Vice. And then later he directed movies such as Thief, Heat, Ali, The Aviator, which David talks about, and recently Ford v. Ferrari. So cool. Then he also worked with Oliver Stone, who wrote Midnight Express and Scarface, two super incredible movies. And then he wrote and directed Platoon, Wall Street, The Doors, JFK, and Any Given Sunday, which David put together. Wow. Very, very impressive. Yeah, he's won three Academy Awards. Another director he worked with is Taylor Hackford. He directed The Idolmaker, one of our favorites, as we our talked about. Our favorite, David. <laughs> we used to watch The Idolmaker together. Yeah. And then he also did Officer and a Gentleman and Ray. So awesome. It was quite incredible. The people that David Stein worked with, I was blown away and impressed by the incredible talent. And it just showed how talented he was or is. David's big break came from working with Michael Ovitz. Michael Ovitz was the co-founder of CAA, which is Creative Artists Agency. And then he later became president of the Walt Disney Company. Amazing. I mean, seriously amazing people. Yeah, he actually left uh, Disney after only about a year. And his severance package was about $130 million or more. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. One of the interesting people that David talks about is Marty Baum, and he is a famous agent. But the most interesting part for our podcast is that he spanned three generations of David's family. Exactly. He worked with his grandfather, Julie Stein, his father, Norty Stein, and David himself. Yeah, he was Julie's agent, and then he gave Norty an early job in his career and then helped David get his first agent job at CAA. Got a shout out to Marty Baum. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We almost need a breakdown on every aspect of making a deal in Hollywood. We talked about spec scripts and options and packaging. So it was quite an education. It was quite an education talking to David today, because as you know, I'm learning a lot every time we have a new episode of Growing Up Beverly Hills, and David Stein took me to a master class. Wherever you're listening to this, make sure to subscribe. Please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Growing Up Beverly Hills. I'll talk to you guys later, and I'll talk to you later, Stacy. Talk to you later, David. Bye. Bye. If you or someone you know is having a tough time right now, please reach out to the Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. There's always someone there to help.